Good morning. My name is Dan. I'm a leader here. It's a privilege to open God's Word with you. We're in Mark chapter 9, verse 30. It's about two-thirds of the way back in the Bible. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. We'll be going through verse 50 today. Continuing through our sermon series of Mark. I want you to take a moment and imagine the worst church you've ever been to. Or if you've only ever gone to one church, you probably have no frame of reference, so pretend a little bit here. Just imagine you walk in and the the atmosphere looks pretty lively, but you quickly realize that people are there and they're kind of worshiping the pastor and the pastor's kind of seen as this rock star and his message is terrible. In fact, you would imagine Jesus is on the outside of this church knocking to come in, but the music's too loud. Imagine that. Imagine the worst preacher you've ever heard. Imagine you walk out of this church depressed. Imagine maybe one of those prosperity preachers you hear about on the Internet. Now, I'd like you to imagine that that's the only option you have for church. Just imagine there's no other church. And imagine there's no good blogs or books out there. But to be honest... Since there's no good church and there's no good books and there's no good blogs, if there was one, you probably wouldn't even recognize it because you don't know what good is. Just imagine that. If you're a new Christian, this might seem reasonable to you. If you've been going to church your whole life, you have to work at this a little bit. Imagine there's a community Bible available at your local library that you have to fight over. But, you know, really, not many people know how to read it anyway. So it just sort of seems pretty hard. And imagine this is normal for you. Imagine this, what I just described, is normal life for you. In fact, it starts to cloud you and you become numb to anything but this. And you're even hoping one day that you can start a church so you can be a rock star like that pastor you see. That's, that's what you imagine is religious. That's what you imagine God wants. Now, imagine somebody comes along and they do a bunch of amazing things. And the crowds run to this person. And you think, this guy knows how to do it. And you know what? You're in his circle. He picks you out. You're one of his boys. Poor girls. You're thinking of putting him down as a reference for your pastoral job. But then one day, he tells you, to give away your dreams of power and live sacrificially and even die for your enemies. Wait a minute. Would you follow this person? He goes against everything you know to be right. Everything you know to be right. Welcome to the orientation of the 12 disciples. Welcome to the orientation of the 12 disciples. As we've continued through Mark, Jesus is beginning to leave sort of the public sphere, and he's more privately now teaching his disciples. One of them, Peter, and I would say all of them sort of by following Peter, have confessed Jesus is Christ, and now Jesus is saying, here's what that looks like. Here's what it looks like to follow me, and they hate it. 
Last week, uh, the first round of teaching went a little something like this. The living must die. Followers of Jesus are supposed to be misunderstood, hurt, and killed. That's how it goes. That's the script. And it drives them crazy. This week, the teaching is now going to expand into a large section Now, we'll be walking through it for the next three weeks. And the overall theme is this. If anyone would be great, he must be last. So today, we're going to define what that is. What does last mean? And it's going to make up the three points on your outline. Look at that. Serve the least, promote the greatest, and destroy sin. That's what it means to be last. And what we're going to find today is that following these principles perfectly is perfectly impossible. This is going to mean something so much greater than the little acts of service we probably related to. But you know what? These commands stand, even though it's hard for us to meet them. And uh, with Jesus' help, they can actually be followed. You can actually obey what Jesus is saying here. So here's this week in a nutshell. Jesus will show us how to live, and then he'll free us from death. So let's start in Mark chapter 9, verse 30. I'm going to read the first seven verses. This is serve the least. They, that is Jesus and his disciples, went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he, Jesus, did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Let me pray for us. Dear God, would you soften our hearts as we hear your word? Would you remind us of how great our sin is, but how much greater your mercy is? And would we walk away changed? Amen. Now, as you look over the first few verses, how fitting is it that Jesus would begin this teaching by referring to the most selfless act that the world would ever know? God dying for his enemies. That's how he starts. Where do you go from there? Look at verse 31. The Son of Man, he's referring to himself, and he's done this multiple times so far, will be delivered into the hands of men and killed, and on the third day will rise. And Jesus here is teaching privately. There's no distracting crowds, no people tugging at your arm for free bread, and he's speaking plainly. And they're on a long walk. They've got plenty of time to ask some follow-up questions. But they don't. And I think it's because every fiber in their being, everything they are, shakes off the words that he says. It's like another language to them. 
Messiahs don't die. They get rich. But they don't say any of that stuff. They're quiet, but not for long. Soon in verse 33 and 34, we find out that on the trip they begin to argue about who is the greatest. Now what's kind of most striking is that Jesus, who is their teacher and who has been doing miracle after miracle, does not get a vote. They're arguing amongst themselves. They're not even paying attention to him. In fact, he asks them what they've been doing, and they lie to him. They say nothing. That's lying, right? Now think about that. It's like, if you imagine the disciples so far, they're talking when they should be listening, and they're listening when they should be talking. Now I'm sure that they know that Jesus knows what they've been talking about. Because here's what they do. They kind of do this. You ever see a kid do that? <laughs> you ask them the obvious. You leave them alone in a room with a cookie. And you say, don't eat the cookie. And you walk out of the room. You come back and there's no cookie. And then crumbs. And you're like, did you take that cookie? You don't need to ask them that. But you do. And they go, shame. But you know what? Jesus' next words are not scolding, and they're not bitter like we often are to our kids. Look what he does. He sits down. He's not over them like a hawk. He sits down and he says to them, If anyone will be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And then he gives them an object lesson of what I think he means by the least of all, a child. He takes a child, I guess there's some parent who says, let me borrow this for a minute, and takes a kid and puts it down in the middle of them. Now, before I tell you why I think Jesus does this, let me tell you about children in this culture. It's a little different than how we view children. We, we tend to worship children. We tend to buy them lots of stuff. We tend to hover around them when, they, when there's a new one, right? You're going to get mauled afterwards. Watch. <laughs> the hearts. Let me tell you about children in this culture. In general, a child landed in one of two categories. If they were healthy, and preferably male, their value was usually not in their present state, but in their future contributions. In other words, you had worth when you got a job and supported the family. You don't have worth now. You grow up, you get smart, you make money, you support the family, you have value. That's your value. And if the children weren't healthy, or in some cases, if they were just female, they were seen as not worth any investment. And so many of them were just kind of abandoned. I don't know that this child was in that situation. We, we don't know. But either way, the culture at this time gave children zero intrinsic value. But Jesus believes otherwise. He takes a child in his arms, so likely a very small child. And in verse 37, he says this, If you receive a child like this in my name, you receive me, and not just me, but God. Now, you imagine what I said earlier about the rock star mentality. You imagine the church that kicks children out because they're a distraction. This is staggering. Jesus is literally holding weakness. 
and he takes a small child who is completely dependent because I have some of those. They are completely dependent, especially at the beginning. And Jesus says, great people serve people like this. As the disciples have just puffed up and argued about their greatness inwardly, Jesus says, no, make, make much of the people whom the world disregards. Pause with me for a moment. This lines up perfectly with the kinds of people that Jesus has served so far, doesn't it? Think about who he served. Poor people, sick people, women. The type of people that the world rejects. And I might add, if I could just imagine, I would imagine that those are the type of people that Jesus' disciples would happily step over on their way to greatness. And you know what? That's actually the point. I think this is why Jesus is so patient with his disciples. It's because Jesus is modeling serving the least right here. Of what pedigree were his disciples? Where did they come from? Fishermen, tax collectors. Jesus plucked them out of nowhere, and I think they've forgotten that already. Yet Jesus humbly teaches them privately. This is shocking for a rabbi to do. They should be fired for what they're doing. They're lying to him? They have the wrong attitude. He should send them away. He doesn't. He leans in. This is shocking for a rabbi to do, even more so for God. God leans in and cares for his disciples because he knows they're the least. Now let's see their response to that. Point two, promote the greatest. Let's keep reading. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon be afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For literally, for truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. John's response to Jesus' is teaching sounds like he's changing the subject. He's referencing some previous interaction, as far as I know it's not recorded in the Bible, where the disciples are out and they see a man promoting Jesus and they stop him. Why does John say this? Well, I think John is trying to be humble, but he doesn't have a bit of humility in him. So out comes more self-promotion. He's like, Jesus, we're serving you. Look, here's an example of how we've been looking out for your brand. Quality control. We see some guy, looks a little sketchy, we stop him. I wonder how they stopped him. I wonder how they stopped But it's really about them, isn't it? Look at their words. We tried to stop this man. Why? Because he was not following us. Us. Not Jesus. Us. We don't like it. How might you respond if you were Jesus to this? Look at what Jesus says. Don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Jesus is gracious in his assessment 
of what promotion should look like. Jesus considers this situation and is gracious. In fact, Jesus goes on to say that even someone who offers a cup of water in my name, they get a reward. This is not the rock star campaign that the disciples were expecting. I remember reading about televangelists who they would have these prayer lines and they'd say, pray for us, send us money, and people would send them money and letters and prayer requests, and the command was this, open the letters, take out the check, throw away everything else. Some of you guys probably may have grown up in that culture. You may have grown up hearing about that. You might have gone to one of those churches. Could you imagine some old frail lady walking up to the disciples and handing them a cup of water and saying, here, this is for you, I love you. Could you imagine what they would do? They'd probably pour it out, smack it away. This is not important to me. It's because their concern is the self-promotion of their own campaign. They're just about themselves. They don't care about the people they're reaching. But the key in Jesus' words is this. In my name. Cup of cold water. In my name. You get a reward. Jesus' concern is not the size of the gift. It's the heart of the giver. Jesus' concern is not the size of the gift. It's the heart of the giver. And the disciples' hearts, we know they're way off. They're locked in on their own greatness. And so not only have they rejected the position of servant in point one, right? But now they go out and they find servants and they shut them down. You see what's happening? They not only reje- they're not only rejecting servanthood, but they're stopping actual servants. It's like Jesus has told them to go be a, a sweet scent ambassadors of the world and they're like a stench. They're choking out their own potential teammates. You know why? They don't want teammates. They're arguing about amongst the 12. They don't even want each other. They want greatness. That's what they want. Now, does that kind of sound familiar? If you're familiar with the whole context of Mark, when I, when I think about what Jesus' disciples are doing here, they're actually on the fast track to becoming Pharisees. But Jesus here is sitting down and he's gently intercepting them. He's saying, the promotion that needs to happen is not of your agenda, but of me. And it really doesn't matter how. Promote me with whatever you have. The cup of water that you have. Promote Jesus with that. Don't make it some big show. And so next he really digs in. It's your third point. Third way to live as the least is to destroy sin. We read the last eight verses. This one's going to take a little bit of time. Jesus then said, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to 
than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. But everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. Now it sounds like Jesus is changing the subject. What's he talking about? Whoever causes a little one to sin, Jesus says, and by the way, the child is still there. Who knows what the mom's thinking as Jesus is going on here. Whoever causes a little one to sin, like this, it would be better if that person were dead, thrown into the sea. So it might sound like Jesus is changing the subject, but I think he's actually leading in hard here. Here's what I mean. Jesus is describing behavior that runs against the, pr the principles of humility that he's just talked about. In other words, Jesus is now just talking about sin. He's talking about failure to do points one and two. Failure to care for the little ones, but instead cause them to sin. And he says sin, failing to meet one and two, that's worse than death. Jesus says, so cut it out of yourselves and have salt in yourselves. In other words, purify yourselves. Wait a minute. That means follow point one and two perfectly. Have the disciples done that? They haven't even come close. They don't even know what Jesus is talking about. Have the disciples sinned? Absolutely. They've sinned in this chapter, let alone all of Mark. Are they even the least bit aware of it? Nope. But guess what? They sure like picking apart other people, don't they? What Jesus is doing here, I think, is he's telling them to turn their guns, which they've got pointed outward, shooting at people, and he's saying, turn those guns on yourselves. And Jesus' words here are intense, and I would like to think that they were very scary to the disciples. Cut out your eye? Or you're going to go to hell and it, and it lasts forever? Here's the immediate point in all of these verses. Sin must be destroyed for people to enter into God's kingdom or else you go to hell forever. Can you just imagine the disciples' hearts just hardening when, as they hear this? Everything you're doing, the crowns you're putting on your head, that ends in hell. Can you imagine what they must be thinking at this point? How do you feel when you hear stuff like serve the least and don't promote yourself? That's hard to hear, isn't it? But if you don't do that stuff, if you don't live the way Jesus is calling, there's no, there's no option C. You do it or you're punished forever. And that's where the disciples look to be headed, don't they? But wait a second, pause, because Jesus has already said that people can't defeat their own sin. 
right? Do you guys remember um, back in chapter 7, I preached on this several months ago. Do you remember what Jesus said to his own people? People are defiled from within. At the heart. How does that clarify this text? It means you can't just cut out the bad parts of a bad person because they're bad all the way through. Jesus himself has said that. So why does Jesus tell them to cut out sin if they can't do it? It's because Jesus is not giving his disciples a basic checklist for sin management. He's foreshadowing a job that they can't do themselves. But he can. This points ahead to the cross. That's what Jesus is saying here. You know, the, the, the last shall be first stuff, it's often treated as uh, kind of fortune cookie material. I've been to a couple bad churches and they read this section and then they're just like, hey, they read it and they're just like, hey, go do that stuff, go do nice things. You can't just say that. You don't know who's sitting in your pews. Anybody could walk in and hear that and say, oh, okay, I should just do the right thing. This is not fortune cookie material. You can't just hear this stuff and go do it. Certainly not perfectly, but you know what? If you talk to a Muslim, a couple people shot their eyes like when I said Muslim, or you talk to a Buddhist, or you talk to an atheist, well, they say humility, charity. Yeah, that's good stuff. You should do that, right? You can get a bunch of different religions to agree on the good things that Jesus is saying to do here. But by introducing sin or the, the failure to do these things, Jesus is teaching us that when we don't do those things, it's not a character flaw. It's not a mistake. It points to a rotten heart that should go straight to hell. That's what Jesus says should happen to you if you don't do that. Here's what I'm saying. These people, the disciples, the readers, us, we don't need good teaching. We need deliverance. We can receive good teaching, but we can't do it. Because you know what? Jesus was not just a moral teacher. He didn't come just to give us more information. He came to deliver us from the law that we couldn't keep. Let's look back at your outline and we'll prove it. Look at points one and two. Jesus meets the job requirements that he gives. Point one, Jesus serves unworthy people like the disciples, and he doesn't just do it by living a nice life to help them. He's going to actually die to save them. So he's going to die for his enemies. That's the ultimate act of charity. You can't get bigger than that. Point two, Jesus is the perfect ambassador, full of mercy. He can only point people to himself, not because he's puffed up, but because only he is worth following. Life can be found nowhere else. And it's in this meek, patient man named Jesus who sits down and holds a child. And so we can't meet this standard that he's called us to. We can't be servants because we serve ourselves. And we can't promote Jesus as the greatest because in our works, when we fail to do points one and two, it's because 
we think we're the greatest. She goes, we think we're worth following, so we build these little kingdoms where we puff ourselves up. So in other words, we can't do points one and two because we're, sin- because we're sinful, and we can't kill our own sin, point three, so Jesus does it for us. That's your main point. Jesus does it all. He shows us how to live, and then he frees us from death. Because we can't live that way. So then how do we respond? Because when Jesus was raised, the commands stood. The commands stood. When Jesus was raised, he said, go and do and teach everything that I've commanded you. He didn't nullify this stuff. We're supposed to then go do it. How do we do that? These commands stand. We're called to do this stuff. So how do we do it? Well, the first thing that needs to change is our beliefs. And that takes time, so we're going to do a little bit of application. Let's apply this stuff. Let's apply the gospel to what we just talked about. The first thing that needs to change is our beliefs. It's in our heads. So the first application for your head is this. Believe that Jesus really did defeat the penalty of sin that you needed to defeat but couldn't. So believe that Jesus did what you couldn't. You want shorthand. Let's do points one and two of your outline together first. And I'm going to call that service. So think about serving the least and being an ambassador of the greatest. And that's under service, pointing it outward. And then we'll talk about killing sin. Think about service. Think about trying to do what Jesus said in points one and two. Without the gospel front and center, your mind is only going to be preoccupied every day with your little kingdom, like whatever you want to do, with with your name. So what that's going to look like is when you're in places like church, is you're either not going to serve because it's hard, or you're only going to serve in areas that make you look good. Or because people give you stuff. Maybe verbal compliments, maybe money, I don't know. If that's the case, then your evangelism, like the disciples, is going to be a virus. Because it's going to be all about you. How about, how about killing sin? Without the gospel front and center there, you're either going to deny your sin and just boast about how good you are, like the disciples, or when you're found out, you're going to look away from Jesus in shame, also like the disciples. You're going to do one of two things. Because boastful people do things like avoiding the confession of their sin. Or you just kind of downplay it. And shamed people, people who look away from Jesus, resort to things like penance. Like you cut yourself, or a lot of eating disorders come out of this, or just simply by yelling at yourself. Maybe you do that all the time. Just beat yourself up all the time. You're trying to solve the sin problem without Jesus, and you can't do that. So what you need to do, the head change that needs to happen, is to believe in the mercy of Jesus that's bigger than you are. So you fix your eyes on the Bible, and you look at 
promises all throughout that show the great mercy of Jesus. Because he's more patient than you are short-tempered. And his grace is greater than your sin. When that belief change happens, when you start to operate out of that belief, Jesus will begin to take center stage in your mind and it will no longer be about you protecting your image or hiding your sin or making your name good. It won't be about those things anymore. And with that, you will become less. Your mind will begin to fill, not with how you can make yourself great, but how you can serve others and reach your neighbors and reach the nations. And here's how that mind change will then change your heart. Second application to your heart. Incline yourself against yourself and towards Jesus. I'll say it again. It's kind of weird. It's like the math problem is your title. Less is greater than greater. It doesn't make sense. Neither does the command of Jesus, but it's perfect. Incline yourself against yourself and towards Jesus or towards serving other people. That might sound confusing, but let me explain it with an example from my life from this past week. Maybe that'll help it make sense to you. One of the most rewarding mornings I had with the Lord recently was on my birthday. It was this week. And it started out as a, as a big kind of mental battle. I don't know if you guys ever did this on your birthday, because the temptation is that your birthday is all about you, right? You're like perching on Facebook 1201. You're waiting for those. Yeah, you did that. <laughs> Um, my temptation was that my birthday was all about me, right? I mean, that, that, that's our culture, isn't it? You know, it should be easy. It should be fun. Nobody should ask me to do dishes or change diapers. It should be awesome. That's the wrong thinking. If you're, I mean, if, if you're non-Christian, okay, yeah, go do that stuff. Well, you shouldn't, but, you know, that's how you operate. If you're a Christian... Your birthday should be like the least about you of any day. It's the celebration of God's work in you. It's the celebration that you're nothing without the Lord. He's everything. And I, the Lord brought that battle to mind. And uh, what I told myself was, you know, this day isn't about me. No day is about me. A good day is not me feeling validated. Jesus validates me. I don't have to be validated. Everybody can forget, and my name would be written in heaven. That would be enough. But guess what happened? My heart followed. I then began to want to let my wife sleep in while I got up early and took care of the girls. That's what happened. That thought actually was kind of a joy rather than like, all right, fine, I'll do it, but you got to pay me back later. I wanted later in the day to seek deep conversations with my brothers and sisters throughout the day instead of keeping it kind of pithy. Because you know what? Then I get to be near to Jesus. It's the best thing to want. But you know what? I can't just stop at once. I can't just think happy thoughts about getting up early and then roll over. I've got to get up. i got to do that stuff. That's point three, or application three. It's about serving the least, 
promoting the greatest, killing sin. The application towards your hands then is getting up and doing these things in points one, two, and three, even when you don't feel like doing it, even when they seem like backwards beliefs. So let me start with just a quick example from each. I'll start with serve the least. And I'll start with this. Moms, dads, nursery workers, thank you. The world does not regard the children you care for. And they probably make fun of you, especially if you stay at home. But God values you. You're serving completely dependent people made in God's image. Jesus thought children were valuable, or else he wouldn't have become one himself. So I really mean it when I say that when your job seems meaningless, especially you moms who, any of you that stay at home or are tackling it single, when your job seems meaningless, know that changing a dirty diaper is a beautiful aroma to Jesus. I mean that. Next time you change a diaper, think about that. Probably in the next 10 minutes. And to everyone else here, please serve the nursery. It's like humbling and a fantastic way to serve the church. Next, promote the greatest. I'm going to use hospitality as an example. You know that what the root word is in hospitality? Hospital. I read this in a book. It's fantastic. It's about Christian hospitality. To welcome people into your home to revive them. They're, they're broken. You bring them in, and then they're supposed to come out refreshed. And there's no better way to do that than to help them see Jesus more clearly when they come into your home. But you know what? Sometimes you think you're doing this and you're not. Here's what I mean. You make having people over all about the perfect dinner or the perfect house, right? You guys ever see the quote on the internet? Like, quick, people are coming over. Clean up so that they don't think you live the way you actually live. You make it all about that perfect dinner or the perfect house. And you know what? Then you turn the conversation back to yourself if that stuff isn't up to your standards. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, the roast is just a little burnt around the edges. Oh, I'm sorry. It's kind of a mess. You bring it back to you. They're not even part of the equation anymore. It's about you looking good. And it gets especially hard when you have kids. Because you have to, like, literally bulldoze the Legos out of the way to the table. <laughs> but you know what you have? You have an opportunity when you bring people into your house to point them to Jesus. And he's the food that satisfies forever, not the stuff you serve at the table. That means if you make a feast and in your busyness your guest is second, you lose. I don't care how good the meal is. But if you make a box of macaroni and cheese and you give them your full attention, you win. Try it. It's like a dollar. Lastly, kill sin. If you're in a growth group or you're in a small group, dig in. That's what killing sin looks like. If you're not in those things, find one. Meet with people one-on-one. -on -one. Start to confess the things that you've hidden. Confess them to your spouse, your friends, the guy next to you. And um, because Jesus told his disciples to have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The seasoning of believers, refining one another as you confess to people and they point you to the scriptures, 
That speaks volumes to a dead world. But you know what? It takes a lot of time to do this, doesn't it? To confess those things. That's hard. We're complex, aren't we? The guy next to us is complex. And our families are complex. And we have stuff that's hidden down so deep. And we can be living so proudly and think we're doing it for Jesus and we're not. This stuff takes a while, but you know what? Jesus' disciples have sinned greatly, haven't they? And they're not done by a long shot. They're actually going to abandon Jesus at the cross. And even after, when Peter's saved, he still struggles with certain sins. But you know what? Eleven of Jesus' disciples end up serving Jesus with their whole lives. The guys that I just talked about, it's easy to make fun of because they seem to blow it so often. Ten of them actually get martyred for following Jesus. And the one who isn't gets exiled and writes the last book in the Bible. Want that on your resume? And through their work, thousands come to know Jesus. These guys, their work is why we're meeting here today. That's how Christianity got over here. These guys that we make fun of. You know what? When they served Jesus and they became less, their lives looked like death incarnate. And you know what? As you follow Jesus, so will yours. It's kind of how you know you're doing it right. But your hope is that Jesus is life incarnate. So as your life looks like death, remember Jesus, who's life. And remember that suffering is part of the growing process. Jesus called that part of the deal in verse 49. Everyone will be salted with fire. These situations, this teaching that the Lord puts you through, it's meant to refine you. It's not meant to break you. It's meant to actually make you look more like Jesus. You're going to serve till it hurts, and the world won't always love you for it. They're going to misunderstand you. They're going to, they're going to hurt you. They might actually kill you. And either way, you're going to die last. But for the rest of eternity, I'm the first. Jesus promises that. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you so much for the promises we read in your scripture that we can actually look at who you are and we can see life. Lord, it's just stunning to think of the commands that you gave and how much they went against the culture. But you know what? That culture was set on fire by you. You changed it. And so as we look at your life, Jesus, help us to remember how good it is. Help us to remember when we're rebuked and when we struggle and when we suffer, that all of that is meant to bring us low so that we can see how great you are. Lord, would you help us to do this in your name? Amen.